All right, this is the easiest introduction we have ever had to do for an episode. Do the thing, man. Just go ahead and do the thing. Just like every other fucking film podcast that has covered this or will cover this in the future. I have come here to chew bubblegum and podcast, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Yeah, great. We're just like everyone else. I guarantee you there's been at least like six or seven other film podcasts that have done that same exact intro for their They Live episode. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It's still just one of those, like every time I hear it, I'm just like, oh shit, he's going to say it. He's going to say it. Oh shit, he said it. <laughs> yeah, it's like that thing in The Simpsons where they're like going to Bart, like, say the thing, say the thing. <laughs> so I am Derek, the scaredy cat boy host of our show, Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. And joining me as always, who did our fantastic, totally original introduction is Aaron, the movie monster boy. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good i feel ugly like formaldehyde face (laughs) like your face what was the other thing he says i don't know like your face looks like hamburger meat or something i forget i feel like after i start work back in the next couple of days that i will need to rub formaldehyde all over my face (laughs) (laughs) i think my night's going a little better than yours because i'm sitting here while recording at my kitchen table looking out my back windows and a really gnarly looking uh thunderstorm has been rolling in so uh Uh, I apologize ahead of time if uh, our mics catch any thunder and knock on wood, I hope to Christ that power doesn't go out while we're in the middle of recording this. Yeah, we'll see. It'll add flavor either way. But yeah, like usual, if this is your first time listening to us on episode, what, 41, 42, whatever this one is, first off, what are you doing? Second off, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. Again, I am the coward. Aaron is the monster. And we discuss horror movies in terms of phobias and fears and what to expect in these movies. It's a podcast kind of for everyone across the branch of horror, uh, whether you're a newbie trying to break into the genre, but you're a little too scared to, or you're kind of like Aaron and you're a fanatic and you want to gush about it or hear two (laughs) generic white dudes gush about uh, your favorite horror movies. Just Chris Farley the shit out of this. Yeah. But uh, it is mostly to toughen my skin to these movies. That was kind of the original idea behind this project, but also is kind of extending an olive branch to people like me who want to get into it, but are maybe too afraid. And we kind of recommend whether or not these movies are too scared, whether they're good starters for horror, et cetera, et cetera. With that out of the way, Aaron, what have you been digging into lately that's horror related? So as I mentioned in the last episode, it is June exploitation currently still as of us recording this it'll probably be over by the time this comes out but it is june exploitation over at f this movie so i have been trying to keep up with that while i am still not going to work and i'm trying to get ahead of things so there are several movies that i've watched ahead of time um, which will be perfect because they will be done by the time this episode comes out so to hit the horror highlights for lucio fulci day i watched don't torture a duckling which i have never seen that's one of the few fulci movies from that entire long horror bent that he went on that i had never seen before that's a hell of a title for a movie oh that's the best uh giallo title yeah yeah but it is a kind of murder mystery set in a small Italian town. Three young boys are all murdered and the townspeople who are all kind of just backwards and superstitious want to point the fingers at anything, everything. I thought it was very good, honestly. Like, it doesn't have that slow kind of dreamlike, weird pace that so many of Fulci's horror movies have. This is a very straightforward moves at a really solid pace murder mystery. And 
writing was all pretty solid. It wasn't as over the top as some of his other movies are. It was much more mainstream for Fulci, but I really enjoyed it. I was also very surprised by how much the story has similarities with the real-life West Memphis 3 case that happened decades later. Interesting. It's very similar in how the townsfolk are superstitious and religious and just jump to demonizing the outsiders in their community first and foremost. You know, obviously, like, this movie has a conclusion, definitively, unlike the West Memphis 3 case, but it's kind of what a lot of people have assumed in real life maybe sort of happened. So yeah, I thought that one was very enjoyable. It's on Amazon Prime. It is also streaming on the Arrow channel if you have an Apple TV, and you can subscribe to that for five bucks a month, which is a great value for people like me who see all the Arrow titles that they release and wonder like, hey, what is this? Oh, I don't want to spend $30 on this. <laughs> so it's a great way to like check out some of their weird titles. It already paid for itself over and over again there. Yeah. I also checked out Dead Heat for 80s horror, which is a like buddy cop horror comedy thing with Treat Williams and fucking Joe Piscopo. It was fun enough. Joe Piscopo has a lot of dad jokes that are just not at all funny, but the makeup effects in that movie were pretty fucking cool. In a nutshell, it is two LA cops who all of a sudden are getting this weird rash of zombie undead people committing crimes, dot, dot, dot. So it was pretty fun, all said and done. For Giallo Day, I watched All the Colors of the Dark, which is basically Rosemary's Baby without the baby. Um, It's a woman who is kind of going crazy, thinking that she is being stalked by satanic killers. She doesn't know who to trust. She doesn't know if she can trust her fiancé or her sister or her doctor or whoever. So it's very much Rosemary's Baby without the baby angle or the humor. So it was fun. I had kind of a hard time finding a Giallo movie that I wanted to watch for this day that wasn't just completely lurid. I'm trying to watch things that I have never seen before. Yeah, But... I will say the one challenge I've had, considering everything that's going on, it has been really difficult to find an exploitation movie that doesn't center around cops or corruption in the police force or cops who are the fuck the rules, I'm going to do what I want, go outside the boundaries of the law to get things done my way kind of cops. Right. It's been really tough finding movies that don't just center around that for some of these categories. For instance, I definitely rolled my eyes watching Cobra. I thought it was going to be Stallone as like some kind of assassin and turns out, no, it's just Stallone as the too cool for school cop who like fucking has a cool knife and wears cool boots and drives a cool car and wears cool sunglasses. It's just hat on a hat on a hat kind of bullshit. But it's definitely just him, like, mumbling his way through breaking every actual civil law to, like, get (laughs) done his justice. (laughs) Is there a I'm gonna need your gun and badge scene in that movie? No, not quite because, for the most part, they're like, yeah, you just go do it, whatever. Okay. But Dead Heat was kind of on the lighter side of that, I guess, to wrap back around to where I was. Uh, For Prison Day, I watched Turkey Shoot, which is a fucking wild Australian exploitation movie about people in a prison camp, and there's a fucking wolfman. Um, yeah, what? it's like some most dangerous <laughs> game kind of bullshit where these rich elite assholes are going and like hunting the 
these prisoners in the bush and one of them just has a pet wolfman. Okay, sure. Class of 1984 for Teenagers Day, which is about a group of punk teenagers at an inner city high school where everybody's doing drugs and graffiti is everywhere and everybody's wearing trashy clothes and teachers are just firing off guns in class to keep everybody in line. Like, it's just one of those weird propaganda movies made by people who are clearly, like, afraid of the kids. So that movie was enjoyable, oddly enough, but definitely like, oh yeah, this is some fucking Reagan 80s propaganda right here. (laughs) I also watched for Albert Pune Day, a movie called Doll Man. I, I was looking for, like, the most wild Albert Pune movie I could find, and I think I found it. It is Tim Thomerson as a bounty hunter alien from another planet who ends up on Earth chasing an alien fugitive, but then he's a foot tall. And so it's, what? like, him as... Yes. <laughs> it's, like, him <laughs> with all of his one-liners and sunglasses and, like, a duster in his spaceship, but then he gets to Earth and, like, everybody around him is giant and he's the size of a doll, hence the title, Doll Man. So, I had a completely different idea of where you were going when you just said the title. I was expecting, like, (laughs) you know, a garbage late 80s, early 90s, literally a man is made into a doll, Chucky knockoff. Yeah, gotcha. Sort of thing. I wasn't expecting sci-fi. Yeah, it's about a man who is the size of a doll. The one gimmick seems to be when he's on his planet, everybody's like, oh, he's got Max Blaster 9000, the most powerful handgun ever. And when he shoots people, it literally just explodes their entire (laughs) fucking bodies. But then, of course, when he gets to Earth and he shoots people, it's just like a regular gunshot. (laughs) So, whatever. Last thing I'll mention is, for Zombies Day, I watched Cemetery Man, a.k.a. De La Morte De La More, which is a Michel Suave movie that is a kind of loose adaptation of the Dylan Dog comics from Italy and it is a mid-90s movie with Rupert Everett weirdly enough there's a lot of like non-Italian people in this movie but it's basically just the Dylan dog kind of stuff it's him fighting zombies and falling in love with hot Italian women and just horror stuff from there so it was kind of fun it's one that I would like to see in a really solid blu-ray where the color and the black levels are maybe enhanced a little bit because I mean honest I watch it on YouTube Uh, it's not like it's really available anywhere right now but it was definitely kind of a dark movie to watch um i had trouble making out some of the scenes so i would like to see that in a cleaned up version eventually oh like literally the lighting like literally too dark yeah. i couldn't tell what was going on and sometimes yeah okay some of that is like the color levels some of that could be contrast issues and just things like that like it's definitely a movie that could do with a restoration for sure so that's all i've got for now i know that was like a lot of random stuff but again June exploitation. So there you go. What about you, Derek? Uh, mine's mostly going to be video game heavy this week. First off, after wrapping up Persona 5 Royal and Neo 2, I decided to go back and start playing through Horizon Zero Dawn again, yeah. which I beat the main story of Horizon Zero Dawn, but I never went back and played the DLC, The Frozen Wilds, which I've had for over a year now or whenever the DLC dropped. So I'm in the middle of that and 
I don't think it's a horror game. There are elements nah. of horror, but it's mostly like sci-fi fantasy, I yeah, guess. Yeah, there's elements of suspense, but I wouldn't say anything in that game yeah. was horror related per se, but it was a great it was a great video game. It's basically like Terminator, but instead of Terminators, it's all the animals are robots. And Terminator is the first movie that comes to mind well, when you're gonna describe Horizon Zero Dawn. Terminator is like the bad future of Terminator, like where all the Terminators have taken over the world and like AI runs the world basically. So just remove all of the horror elements elements of Terminator and make the Terminators instead of being murderous just make them kind of machines out in the wild that will attack you if you come too close to them there you go okay so Flintstones except the dinosaurs are all robots yes exactly also Mad Max yeah yeah then those are the elements from Horizon Zero Dawn <laughs> that I guess are like sort of relevant to our podcast but I'm not going to spend much time on talking about that because I don't think it's really horror related so while I've been doing that usually look it's kind of a habit of mine is I'll usually have two or three games I'm going through at the same time. I try to put them on different systems, but this time around, both of them happen to be on PS4. So while I'm playing through Frozen Wilds, I started playing a smaller game by the name of Dark Devotion. And Dark Devotion definitely falls into like that dark fantasy horror aspect. It's very dreadful in tone and atmosphere. And there are a lot of heavy like religion overtones to it, but also like Israel religion really a good thing or a bad thing like the whole idea of it is like sacrifice and blind faith it's kind of the setup of the story basically you play as like this nameless templar girl who you're raised in like a religious society there's some kind of pilgrimage to this maze or dark temple that uh, they take every so often and long story short you kind of get separated with the other templars you were with and you basically are thrown into the middle of this basically hellscape maze underground place of like the depths of this forgotten temple and like you're fighting monstrosities of course and everything it's very Dark Souls and Bloodborne if they were basically 2D games like Metroidvania type style it's very hard just like the Souls games you are going to die it's part of the progression of the game is that you kind of grind it out until you basically get enough power and get good enough to make it further on very much like the Souls games so I understand that that's not everyone's cup of tea because the Souls yeah, that's game. not my cup of tea. I don't. I am very much a casual video game player, and I like to play things that kind of tell me a story. I don't want to just hit my head against the wall, like getting good for hours. So yeah, that might not be for me. And the the thing with games like this, because this mostly reminds me of Bloodborne, and then just aspects of the Dark Souls games, but it really does take a lot from Bloodborne. I think so far the story is very subtle. If you want more story, you can dig as far as you want to to get more of it, or you can just take it at the surface level, just like the Souls games. They don't tell you outright what's happening. You just kind of read into stuff based off of what you're seeing and what you're reading. It's kind of lynchian in that way. If you take the time to dive into it, it will reward you with pretty amazing fucked up story. So I'm not really far enough into Dark Devotion to really... I give it a early thumbs up, I would say. And if you like challenging games like the Souls games, then I highly recommend this. Just to give you an idea of like the tutorial boss you fight is literally the child of Limbo. And it's like this big <laughs> okay. almost like baby looking sort of monster. And then the first boss I encountered like after the tutorial is called Hezek the Baptized. Literally like halfway through the fight, he's chained up and his other arm is like carrying a club and he's trying to hit you with it. If you hit him enough times, once you get to like half his health, he literally rips his own arm off to get out of the chains and starts coming after you with one arm and a club. So to just give you an idea of like kind of the horror that's related into this game, it's very gory, even though it's all in 2D sprites and kind of that retro feel to 
it. Very Metroidvania. Okay. Before I go deeper into video games, I wanted to take one quick aside. I have been reading through a little bit of comics, and I got caught up on reading a six-part series that Kelly Thompson, who Kelly Thompson has been all over the fucking place in comics writing, like Colin Bunn, I guess, in that way. But okay. Kelly Thompson wrote a Jessica Jones six-issue series. And Jessica Jones has always kind of been on that kind of fence of noir in the Marvel Universe with a lot of fucked up aspects, very much more of a mature tone. And that kind of continues in this. And what I was just expecting it to be kind of like a modern noir story, because that's usually what these stories are when it comes to Jessica Jones. But it takes a lot of turns that are very, very horror movie-like. I I would say this is more horror adjacent, but it's still very relevant, I think. Basically, in this, Jessica Jones goes back to her office and finds the dead body of a woman who she tried to help a couple years prior. And there was a cold case. The woman just dropped off the face of the planet, stopped talking to her, and Jessica Jones was never able to figure things out from there because she lost contact. And she finds the, the dead body of this woman, and she gets framed for it. It starts from there. And I'd be spoiling shit right in the first and second issues if I try and go further from there. But shit gets bananas. The themes that this explores are violence against women, the idea of there being a shadow fucked up version self of you and what would happen if that person ever actually materialized in the real world and what kind of fucked up shit would they do. And granted, as mature as past Jessica Jones stuff has gotten, this one still feels like it kind of remains almost like a CW or PG-13 version of what an, would be an otherwise fucked up horror movie. So it doesn't quite show you everything, but the stuff that it's referencing and the stuff that you see is going on is really fucked up when you really think about it. And I surprisingly had a blast with it. I thought Kelly Thompson nails Jessica Jones' voice. I know even though Brian Bendis wrote the original Alias and really put Jessica Jones on the map. Like, I kind of like the way Kelly Thompson writes Jessica Jones more than Bendis does. Sure. Bendis's style at this point is hard to get into just because it's so wordy. And I know that's the most obvious criticism of his stuff, but it's just tough to get through an issue because of how just talky-talky it is with filler. And the way that he just writes dialogue is kind of infuriating. So, like, I I don't want to get stuck on this too much because I have a very big love-hate relationship with Bendis. I think the actual dialogue itself is the problem because like I don't mind yeah his stories are fun yeah like the stories are usually great and I honestly don't mind like comics that have a lot of conversation in them but the way his conversations the conversation pacing is the problem and it's for every character like no matter how different they are from each other every character does it when he's writing and it drives me up a wall but anyway (laughs) like but if you want a really good modern story that really fits in with kind of the fucked up nature of a lot of Jessica Jones type stories, it's mature enough to where it feels a little more dark than the normal Marvel stuff, but also still pretty accessible to the greater Marvel universe, kind of like the Punisher comics. This is a good one to start at. So again, Jessica Jones' Blind Spot, written by Kelly Thompson. Going back to video games, I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about the PS5 reveal, but I didn't want to spend so much time on the PS5, but rather the games that look like they are going to be horror or horror adjacent, kind of the ones that I picked that I'm sort of interested in from that aspect. I'll, I'll start off with the ones that like I'm not 
too high on right now, but you know, you never know. It might turn out okay. First one is Ghostwire Tokyo, which I think was originally revealed actually back in 2019. They showed some gameplay from it. I was kind of cool on it, but I do like the idea as it takes place in Tokyo after 99% of the population vanished and spirits are all over the place and they're dangerous and deadly and attacking the player. And almost from a first person perspective, the player is almost using like control type powers to fight them off. That's all there really has been revealed about that game. If Oddworld series is up your alley, they put it, they're putting out a new Oddworld game called Oddworld Soulstorm. I'm not going to talk much on that just because I've not really played much of the Oddworld series, but there is uh, there's a lot of hell, horror elements to those games. The two big horror announcements were probably the Demon Souls remake, which Demon Souls is the predecessor for Dark Souls 1 through 3 and Bloodborne. It's the first Souls-like game from software. We haven't seen this game since, I think it was originally put out in 2009 on the PS3. Um, It's kind of nuts that they skipped a generation completely to put out a remake, but the remake looks pretty gorgeous from what they showed of it. I don't need to explain why Demon's Souls is relevant to horror. Dark fantasy. Demons are trying to kill everyone and steal their souls um, and the people who have their souls stolen turn insane. Sure. The other, (laughs) yeah, the other big one is Resident Evil Village or Resident Evil 8, depending on how you want to look at it. I saw the trailer for this one and it did look pretty cool. I'm down. And I like the way they started the trailer because it started off almost like it was like a folklore horror game because he walks up to that cabin and a guy in the cabin with a shotgun and lets him in. And then they're attacked by what looks like a fucking werewolf. Yeah, it's very Eastern European village castles, dot, 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 werewolf, spooky woods. Yeah, like yeah. it's very much that kind of vibe. I'm, and I'm down. It looks like it's continuing the great stuff from Resident Evil 7. Like the first person focusing more on horror rather than action. It looks like you're going to play as Ethan again. Ethan was the the protagonist from Seven, and I'm okay with that. Ethan was a fine character. Again, Chris Redfield, who is all over this fucking franchise and never seems to age because canonically he was an adult cop in 1998 when (laughs) Raccoon City had their breakout and all that and they've aged him like in real time it seems like oh so those games are like kind of set in real time the original Resident Evil which came out like I think 96 or 97 took place in like 1998 technically okay they have actually followed that timeline that's weird I was for some reason I was thinking that that series was like 30 years from now in the future no zombies uh, like i was thinking it was that kind of thing okay no i guess my impressions are just based on those fucking movies yeah but uh chris redfield is has some kind of mysterious purpose in this game um that'll probably be revealed but the thing that i also really like is the village and eastern european with the castle in the background and all that feels very similar to resident evil 4's whole aesthetic and where that took place granted yeah. resident evil 4 the village was in spain i believe it seems like it's kind of returning to the a lot of roots that Resident Evil 4 set up but also staying true to what Resident Evil set up by kind of continuing in that first person focusing on the horror and again more horror needs werewolves yeah I'll keep harping on that we need need more werewolf more good werewolf stories in horror the last thing that actually kind of took me by surprise and it's the most interesting horror game I think or possibly horror game is a game called Returnal Returnal right now is being marketed Re- at- Returnal yeah, Returnal. R-E-T-U-R-N-A-L. Returnal. Like return and eternal. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, get it? All right. All right. <laughs> um, All right. right now, at least according to Wikipedia, it's being showed as a science fiction psychological horror game. That's my shit. I'm all for that. And it's going to PS5 exclusive. All for it. It looks like it's a third-person shooter that kind of has like roguelike elements where each time you die, you're resurrected and the world kind of regenerates and you go back and you basically follow a space pilot. She gets stranded on Alien World and every time she dies, she finds herself back in that position of crashing, getting stranded, and the world regenerating. The trailer looked amazing. I highly suggest going to check it out. They actually did, I think, show a little clips of an in-game engine that's at least in development right now. So it's just video game the video game. And what do you mean? That seems very meta to me of, yeah, go explore this alien planet and, like, do whatever and then every time you die, it, like, resets you back to where you were. Like, that just seems like that's a video game. Like, isn't that how that works? Yeah, and you might be right. You might be, like, where that's where it gets a little meta because a lot of these times that the games that do this and, like, have that aspect be part of their storyline are, like, the Souls game where you're just, like, a nameless nobody who is cursed to continue to resurrect every time they die. But from the actual trailer of this game the character seems very well developed they obviously have an actress of some kind portraying this woman because she looks a very specific way and speaks a very specific way and it's very much going to be like a story around her and the mystery behind her continuing to die and resurrect so yeah it could go in that meta route and I'd be totally on board with that because that that does seem to be the main aspect of the game um, at least the mystery so far didn't World of Tomorrow or something not World of Tomorrow Edge of Tomorrow do something like that I mean Kind of, yeah. It yeah. was Tom Cruise. Every time he got killed, he would just go right back to like an exact point in time. It was kind of like Groundhog Day in that way. Whatever skills and knowledge he gained in that 24-hour period or whatever, he would go back with. So it is like a video game in the sense that it's just him getting good. So it's the same idea, yeah. Yeah, and so I think this is going to just be like Edge of Tomorrow, but much more, I guess, psychological horror rather than action. Okay. So yeah, that's kind of all I got. I just wanted to touch on the ps5 reveal and how impressed i was with it and that there was a good chunk of horror or horror adjacent games showcased cool cool well before we get to the movie i'll take a quick break and you can hear our little bit for our friends at nightmare threads What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror our content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! Oh man, another another great one. We are tackling this week 1988's science fiction action horror, I'd say masterpiece maybe, directed by John Carpenter. We're back with Carpenter baby. Uh we are discussing They Live. Oh, I'm- 
masters! What do these things want, and why are they here? You still don't get it, do you, boy? They have recruited the rich and the powerful! They're running the whole show. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you! Blinded us to the truth! Take a look. They are safe, as long as they are not discovered. I don't know what they are, or where they came from, but we gotta stop them! Stay away from me! Put these on! They have us! Look at them! They're everywhere! We have no other choice. I don't like this one. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business. Ain't none of yours. We have been lulled into a trance. Listen to what I'm saying to you. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. Control us! They're sending some kind of signals on TV sets. I've got one that can see. Mama don't like Tattletail. Now we start spilling some blood. Let's go! Push I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick And I'm all out of bubblegum. So I texted you about this, Aaron, because They Live Kind of Like Scanners was, for years and years, whenever anyone said 80s movies and horror, there were three things that would pop in my head. One, Freddy Krueger. Okay. Two, the Scanners head blow-up scene. Three, this movie in general, mostly like the consume, obey, obey, consume, conform. Sure. And then chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum, which I find myself saying whenever I'm playing video games and like I'm about to start a boss fight or something, <laughs> even if I'm by myself. But like I texted you after watching this, this is going to floor a couple of y'all, but it's a running reoccurring theme with our show. This is my first time of sitting down and actually watching this movie start to finish. Really? Yes. Okay. I figured this was one that you might have actually seen before. Nope. I've seen tons of clips of it before, but I never saw it start to finish um, in one sitting. This felt like a movie that could have and should have failed in so many ways, but it doesn't. And it works so well because it's super tongue in cheek. You have Roddy Piper, who is a giant heel wrestler at this time, I believe, be the star. Keith David is a fucking badass in this movie. Oh, yeah. But yeah, you have Roddy Piper next to Keith David and Keith David, like you would think going into it, would be like acting circles around Roddy Piper, but with the way this movie goes, their relationship works really well. You have Meg Foster making some choices and acting um, <laughs> in this movie. I don't know, like, what are your thoughts about that? Like, do you consider this a masterpiece, A? And B, do you think that this movie could have and should have failed, but somehow it doesn't? I 1000% think that this movie is pretty much a masterpiece. It is not the most showy movie in the world. No. John Carpenter is not a very showy director. No. <laughs> I think he has a very certain brand, and people who know Carpenter can see that brand, but he is not a showy director. He doesn't have the kind of flair that you get off of a very specific director. Like, think Tarantino, think Edgar Wright, think Wes Anderson, think Scorsese, think Spielberg even. Like, they all have a very specific 
flavor and personality to their filmmaking. They have certain very, like, telly kind of things that tip you off that you're watching a movie by this person. Carpenter is just so much of a journeyman director, and nothing about this movie is super showy. It is a very grounded, practical, we did everything really straightforward and simplistic, told a very tight story with really distinct iconography and really distinct characters and a very clear message. And I think it is just one of the most effective satires. And again, that kind of allegorical horror that works best 20 years later. You know, like it's it's one of those that like people at the time got it. Like there was no mystery around this movie. People got this movie when it came out. I just don't necessarily think it had the same impact because society was kind of coming right out of that period that the movie's commenting on, which is the Reagan era of the 80s. And now that we've had 30 years to look back on that and reflect on it and live through another, you know, now essentially a third wave of this conservative thinking and seeing how society works and reacts, it's just that much more prescient and we have that much more respect for this fucking movie now than what they did at the time. So I don't think the movie is unsuccessful. I think it really is truly a masterpiece, but it has, like most Carpenter movies, taken 20 years for people to really fully come around on it and give it the respect that it deserves. My knee-jerk reaction wants to say that I feel like this movie feels almost more relevant now than it did when it first released, and I'm kind of glad that you sort of kind of helped my, my thought on that. So when I say this movie is timeless, I think it's timeless in that way that it's going to be relevant through certain eras of history going forward, just like the constant cyclical nature of different political parties taking control and everything. If I would have watched this movie back in, I don't know, 2009 or 2010, it would not have nearly had the impact it had on me as it it did watching it today in 2020. Well, I think it takes the fact that we have a fucking insane administration right now that is like literally just such a fucking parody of what reality should be for this movie to stand out that much harder. Yeah, and more than than like science fiction or action, this subgenre of horror is straight satirical to me. Like, yeah, it has basic 80s action where the guns never reload and people are kind of just like shooting wildly. People are dying, but you never really quite see blood or anything. You just see like a spray of gunfire and people screaming and falling over in wacky ways. But otherwise, it's a satirical horror movie, but it's not necessarily a hilarious movie either. It's not like a comedy movie, although there are very much many comedic elements to it. It's kind of like that farce that you see. It's, it's a farce of society put on screen. Yeah. And that's kind of a little scary to see because I could totally believe if someone like put on glasses now and you would see the same shit all over the place right now and there's something kind of sinister about that. Yeah. That's the horror of this movie to me. The whole idea behind it and just how relevant it has become again to our society nowadays. That's the scary part of this movie. So horror beginners, I say watch this a thousand percent, especially right now in the era we're in. What you're going to see on screen isn't going to be what's going to scare you. It's going to be the satirical nature and just how the punchline is it's our reality that's the punchline (laughs) yeah and this is another one of those examples of horror specifically i mean cinema has always been political art has always been political horror specifically is 
political. Like yeah. there was no ifs, ands, or buts about Carpenter's particular views coming into this movie. So you, you cannot make this art. I mean, I don't think you can make that argument for any art, but you definitely can't make that argument for They Live. For They yes. Live is no. a political horror movie. And and like you said, you don't even have to couch it in the context of the time. That's our excuse for so much art, especially when art has like controversial shit in it, which I, you know this movie doesn't. But you know you always have to like look at it through the lens of the time and you can and you can say oh what was going on oh we just had eight years of reaganomics like slowly destroying the middle class and like solidifying the wealth of the top one percent oh well that just keeps happening again so it just keeps becoming relevant all over again like you were saying after watching a movie i read about the themes and everything and just kind of some background to the movie the thing that drove me up the wall is that people of course misinterpreted it and saying that this was actually a white supremacy film. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, that drove me a ball to the point where John Carpenter had to come out and like basically state what it is actually about, which he shouldn't have had to. But yeah, I'll let you take that part. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. Let's kind of start and like go through the production of this and we can get back around to like themes. So the movie is based on Ray Nelson's 1963 short story, Eight O'Clock in the Morning, uh, which was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Later in 86, Nelson actually adapted the story for a comic book anthology yeah. called Alien Encounters and retitled it Nada. I looked up a little bit of the, the comic, like a couple of the panels. It's pretty interesting. Uh, definitely as a slice of life from 80s comics especially that era also too you can totally straight up look up that short story now online and read it in 15 20 minutes because yeah. i think it's only like five or six pages long yeah i read it years ago and it is pretty different all said and done the story is about a man who was hypnotized by a stage magician and then discovers that like all of humanity is actually being controlled by aliens and that he's you know only got until 8 a.m the next morning to like blow the lid off the whole conspiracy weirdly enough it's actually kind of similar in theme to that comic by Cullen Bunn that I mentioned a while back called it Regression. Right. Same idea. A guy has all kinds of weird dark shit unlocked once he gets hypnotized by a stage magician. So Carpenter acquired the rights to the various sources and wrote the screenplay under a pseudonym, Frank Armitage, which is kind of a Lovecraft-inspired pseudonym. He also kind of credits Lovecraft for his general paranoia of undercurrent of like unknowable forces secretly controlled controlling our existence right which we know like you know lovecraft's whole thing was like it's the jews which wrapping back around to what you mentioned a second ago i think that's where maybe some of the misinterpretation can come from certainly but again knowing carpenter and knowing his political views that's definitely not what the aim was so kind of going back to the what some people are interpreting as is this a white supremacy claim that's an allegory for the jewish control of the world and carpenter himself had to eventually come out and say no, it's about the yuppies and unrestrained capitalism. So, totally. And he shouldn't have had to even come out and say that. Like, So Carpenter's been very clear from the beginning about what this film's message was. It's a scathing critique of Reaganomics and classism and consumerism, you know, and it wasn't really a warning. It wasn't a Twilight Zone like this could happen if we don't do whatever. No, this was a fucking documentary of the 80s. You know, this was after eight years of 
of Reagan and just buckwild deregulation. And, you know, this was after the betrayal of Vietnam and Watergate. So there was already a lot of distrust in the system, especially by progressives like Carpenter. But then to have Reagan come in and it very much be a like, oh no, everything's fine and the country's doing great and, you know, everything's on the up and up and America's wonderful and really there's all kinds of bad shit happening under the surface. Carpenter in a 2013 LA Times interview even said, quote, by the late 80s, I had had enough and I decided to make a statement as stupid and banal as it was, but I made one and that's they live. I just love that it was given the middle finger to Reagan when nobody else would. But that is a good description too, because even though they live is very banal, but it feels very much on the nose and very much like self-aware of it, what it's doing. Totally. But it's funny that he kind of like pokes fun at himself for that, because again, this movie I think is timeless. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, on that note, like you said, it's been misinterpreted a lot by the wrong-headed elements. Lots of movies have had that problem. Uh, The Matrix is one that very recently, not only do you have fucking Fox News pundits referencing The Matrix, and you literally have to have the Wachowskis come out and say like, hey, fuck off, this movie's about you, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the whole like idea of this whole red pill bullshit happening on the internet and everything else, right? This movie was also kind of twisted and co-opted by neo-Nazis and white supremacists as a like Jews control the world kind of thing, like you said. But, you know, again, knowing Carpenter's politics not that and it's just kind of one of those like obvious I don't I don't I don't know to me like it seems obvious so that might be my political bias but when the heroes of this story are the working poor most of whom are shown to be people of color one of the leads of the movie is black it's kind of clear to me which side of the political and social spectrum this movie is on yeah <laughs> I don't think it makes any effort to hide what no, it's trying to say and I think everybody else just kind of cherry picks the bits that that they like and apply their own biases because that's also a common criticism of the film is that on one hand it critiques these conservative ideals but then centers around a white macho bro slinging machine guns and sunglasses right and like one-liners and shit but to me the movie is all about that guy who starts off very politically apathetic just as much a victim to circumstances as everyone else around him but he's just choosing not to acknowledge that and he just kind of goes with the flow because you know nothing matters anyway am i right brother but he watches he listens he slowly discovers the truth that everybody else already really knows yeah and he becomes an ally with them and it's about discovering common humanity and empathy and shit which leads to a political awakening like it's very much about this dude who is the status quo finally kind of realizing like hey i need to like make a change you know like i see the truth now i need to start being part of the change to make society better well and i'm glad you brought up the character himself because here's a thought that i had after watching the movie and please correct me if i'm sounding ignorant or problematic at any point but the character that roddy piper has and the character that keith david play those two are two different examples of what in my mind should be kind of like the ideal american on one hand you have roddy piper and like you said he's been kind of a 
victim of the system, but he's also still putting his head down. He even has that one line when he's talking to Keith David about, I believe in America. I just got to work hard and I'll get my opportunity. And like, that's how he starts off the movie. But as soon as the fabric is peeled back or the layers peeled from his eyes and he can actually see what's beneath the surface, he doesn't reject it. Like he doesn't violently like dig deeper into his own ignorance and become very aggressive about it. Like, honestly, like a lot of Americans are right now. A lot of people are. Yeah. Yeah, Like he's the opposite of that. Like as soon as he's shown that like, no, things are fucked up. Here's how and why they're fucked up. He's a hundred percent on board to the point where like he came from a place of privilege, even more so than like Keith David's character, even though they're both kind of in uh, underclass working class area. And he even at first lashes out with that new information kind of in a um, childish manner. Like (laughs) he goes and like immediately calls people out. He's being really out in the open. He winds up going into that bank with a fucking gun. Um, It is just that friend that everybody has who all of a sudden one day just shows up to the barbecue, gets really drunk and is like, man, fucking the Iraq war was like all lie, bro. Like, did yeah, you even exactly. know that? Like, it's that, yeah. He, he is very good-natured at first, and like, he's just lashing out because he doesn't know what to do with this new information. <laughs> but he he eventually, like, becomes an ally. He becomes, he never says this isn't what America is about, but basically this isn't what humanity is about to that point, so he, he goes well, on that mission. Well, you notice, too, to that point, once he, like, sees the truth, it's never a we have to save America. No. It's never that. It is all all about we have to save humanity exactly. it's all about we have to save the people we have to save each other it's not jinguistic it's not nationalistic it's not white forward it's none of that it is just we have to like free the people as a whole and again like all the people in the resistance it's a very mixed group of people we see the people in the shantytown it's a very mixed group of people yeah the movie is very humanist in that way and that's the stance that he takes ultimately and i was wondering if it would become surrounding America or saving America because of his quote in the beginning of like, you know, I believe in the American dream or I believe in America or whatever he said. So then the second character is Keith David, who is another aspect of the ideal American. He knows he is kind of in, he he doesn't have privilege. He knows because either the color of his skin or his socioeconomic status that things are fucked, but he just wants to put his head down and not draw attention to himself because he has a family and like his family comes first. And that's understandable and it gets to the point where when they butt heads and finally he sees the truth he realizes okay you know I have been lying to myself I kind of knew something fucked up like this was going yeah. on. They're both apathetic but for very different reasons. Very different reasons. Coming from very different places yeah. Exactly but they both step up to the plate without any hesitation once the truth has been shown to them yeah. that's why I say they're both ideal Americans in that way because so many Americans now or people in general it doesn't even have to be American People in general, so many now dig into their own ignorance to the point where even if you showed them this, like put them in the they live universe, gave them these glasses and showed them what it was actually like, they would dig in and still either not believe it or fucking turncoat and, you know, go to the aliens and become their stooges for more power. And that's why I I liked the characters that Roddy Piper and Keith David both portray in this movie. And I wish that more Americans were like that. Once they were shown something, they were willing to push aside their beliefs 
beliefs and admit that they were wrong and focus then on how do we fix the problem. Yeah, totally. So all that said, a couple of other bits real quick. Carpenter specifically wrote the role of Frank for Keith David. Fuck yeah. Work with him on the thing, obviously, um, which we've talked about already. Can we just say again how much of a badass Keith David is in general throughout his entire career? I love whenever he shows up. Dude, the dude doesn't even need to do as much work as he's as he's done in video games and he still does it. He's been in so many goddamn things across TV, movies, and video games. He's great. Like, everything he's in, yeah. he's fantastic in. Yeah, we've talked about Keith David before on the Thing episode, but again, just to give you an idea, Disco Godfather, The Thing, Platoon, Bird, Roadhouse, Always, Marked for Death, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Quick and the Dead, Clockers, Dead Presidents, Gargoyles, Volcano, The Coast is Toast, <laughs> Armageddon, There's Something About Mary, What Got Caught, Son, The Frank of the Beans, Pitch Black, Requiem for a Dream, Ass to Ass, Novocaine, Barbershop, The Mass Effect Trilogy, Coraline, The Princess and the Frog, Cloud Atlas, Community, The Nice Guys, Adventure Time, and this motherfucker has 13 upcoming projects. Yeah. Dude is a working actor in the best kind of way, and everything that he does, he makes better because he's fucking in it, and I'm down every time. It's crazy to me that he's played parts in fucking Saints Row and Halo, and then he's done shit like Princess and the Frog, and then just, uh, which, shit, I didn't mention this in any of the recommendations in our recent episodes, but Sam and I watched Princess and the Frog like two months ago, and he straight up plays like a horror movie villain in that. He's totally, the Shadow yeah. Man, and he's fucking phenomenal as the Shadow Man in Princess and the Frog. Yep. Carpenter cast Roddy Piper after meeting him at WrestleMania 3. So I was gonna ask you, why is Roddy Piper in this movie? I mean, yeah. it works, but at the time, like, that's kind of an insane casting. So, at the end of the day, they literally talked about every fucking leading man in Hollywood potentially playing this role. And none of them quite worked for Carpenter. He wanted somebody that was a little more down to earth that felt a little more realistic and he originally wrote the role for kurt russell but carpenter was kind of like you know i already had him in three movies i need to spread the love around a little bit so again they looked at all kinds of people but ultimately carpenter's a lifelong wrestling fan and so he wanted a wrestler specifically to do this role and he met roddy piper at wrestlemania 3 and just it worked you know he's basically said that roddy has life written all over him so that's you know ultimately kind of where things went rest in peace Roddy Piper one yeah, of the totally. greatest wrestling bad guys in history yeah he was specifically known for being a heel in WWF and WCW Roderick George Toombs as his Christian name goes he was also in Hell Comes to Frogtown which is a fucking weird movie that I love back in action no contest he was in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia which we love <laughs> I, I like that episode he's in too he was on Adventure Time as well with Keith David um, and then for no reason, he's in the Cindy Lauper music video for The Goonies Are Good Enough from The Goonies. Otherwise, yeah, he wanted to be in this movie. Carpenter wanted him to be in this movie. Fucking Vince McMahon, of course, was like, no, I don't want him to be in this movie, blah, 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 because he's a fucking conservative control freak. And Piper basically left the WWE 
F E. I don't know. I, it was I, F I, at the time. It was F at the time. Okay, I'd read both things that I wasn't sure. I was like, I think WWF was what it was. But Piper also credits this movie for being kind of the catalyst for his huge return to wrestling afterward. So you know, he's very thankful for the role from everything that I've ever seen and read and heard from. His character, of course, is never named in this movie. Is only credited as Nada, which is nothing in Espanol. It's that's gotta undoubtedly be a reference to the character George Nada from the original short story. Yeah. I'm assuming, right? The movie was shot eight weeks downtown LA. Um, it had a $3 million budget. It was released the weekend before the 1988 election. So talk about some good timing. <laughs> it debuted at number one. It had a $13 million box office, which made money. Not at all a big success. Um, not when like Halloween 4 came right behind it and scooped up a giant chunk of money. A budget of $3 million, Was that a big budget back in 1988 or was that a small? No, that's a small budget. still a small budget. That's still a small budget. Yeah. Which this movie definitely, you can see the seams certainly i think there is still some really solid stuff that even though it has a handmade maybe slightly quaint feel to it is still really effective anytime that he puts the glasses on you see the matte yeah. paintings and all that like it that's all gorgeous the makeup i think still holds up i wouldn't even consider this as like it feels unfinished or handmade i would say that it, it's very sincere and i say handmade in the sense that there's a jankiness to it but the jankiness feels very yes very appropriate for the type of story this is. Remember earlier how you mentioned like you see people get shot but there's no blood. I mean the cuts and like really look (laughs) at the editing. It's usually the same shot of gun muzzles firing and then just people like and like spazzing out and like falling over. It's like the it's it's hyper violent but it's hyper violent in like that PG action movie like eighties action movie way where you never see any blood but they never reload guns and there's tons of people shooting everywhere and yeah it's just that old West way of like you see somebody shoot a gun and then the bad guy just kind of like grabs his stomach and like falls over yeah I feel like that was on purpose that they totally do it that way with the rest of the movie well it's again Carpenter knows how to put together a movie in a very practical shot by shot like I can build this out of pieces and put this together to give me what I need there's even things later like when they're at the like alien spaceport where you notice they're just in a fucking like industrial access corridor (laughs) and then they just keep cutting to other stuff that's very clever in the way that it's edited and you don't really think about it when you're watching it that way no you don't even though it's an easy workaround yeah so i mean this is one of those movies that like has that handmade quality that i do appreciate because he knows how to make it work even on a small budget like this and again well I i think we talked about it when we when we did the fog but i'm just glad that he is actually still alive to where he can enjoy the fruits of his labor because he is a master like he is one of the cinema masters and it's nice that he works so heavily in horror and is alive long enough to really get most of the praise I would argue historically at what at least is from his horror work yeah and of all the masters I think he has been me personally I think he has been the most consistent I think he has the most really unimpeachable hits under his belt. I think he is also equal parts really creative 
creative and original and picks projects that are very novel and have a very specific quality to them. But then he can also consistently execute at a very high level. Yeah. And, you know, even his like lesser movies and air quotes are still really functionally well-made movies, in my opinion. And I think I'm parroting myself completely from The Fog. But like, again, listen to this run. Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, The Original Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live, and that's just 70s through the 80s. Yeah, and like, again, even if you're, you know, like me and you're a hard junkie, it's just still that like, ugh, like that warm blanket of just like, oh yeah, just, it's it's all fucking good. This movie had a long ass poster tagline. You see them on the street, you watch them on TV, you might even vote for one this fall. You think they're people just like you. You're wrong. You're dead wrong. That's a great tagline. <laughs> That's a terrible fucking tagline. That's so much shit it. to put on a poster. I love it. I wish more movies did that. Uh, but yeah, so much of this movie, at the end of the day, has just become our everyday reality, unfortunately. Like, that ever-widening gap in economic inequality, militarized police, drone surveillance fucking toxic advertising media misinformation like so much of what we are like actually right fucking now living through in real life is shit that this movie called out 30 years ago yeah the toxic advertisement you would see now that like would be in a they live in 2020 would be like a car commercial being like we know how hard it is to get through quarantine let us sell you Uh, a car to feel better basically um but yeah shit like that we're dedicated to diversity black lives matter buy this mercedes yeah (laughs) just uh on that note shepherd fairy the artist his Obey series was inspired by this movie, which people who haven't even seen this movie have probably seen all of his fucking artwork. You know, his most famous at this point is his Obama Hope painting, and that has been memefied to hell and back, but, you know, the Andre the Giant Obey thing is all his deal, and that was from this movie. There was also a remake announced in 2010 that was going to be written and directed by Matt Reeves. Interesting. Um, the guy who's, like, doing the new Batman movie yeah. and the Planet of the Apes movies, right? Um, and Carpenter was going to executive produce it but it then kind of morphed into like a straight adaptation of the original story and it's just kind of dot 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 gone to the wayside since then and nothing's really been said about it oh yeah so i i did read a little bit about this i didn't realize it was matt reeves who was attached to it but i did read that part of the thing was they were going to do that adaptation of more of the of the story rather than yeah. they live it's not going to be the movie yeah and they were actually going to purposely ditch the satire and political elements so i if they were going to do that i'm glad it didn't get fucking remade then yeah because i mean at that point it just becomes kind of generic sci-fi i mean there's just there's been a lot of sci-fi movies that have had that same kind of element well, like the remake of robocop totally it's unnecessary yeah and missed the point <laughs> this is the point and it's <laughs> like, unnecessary and the yeah. point completely yeah yeah i you know i think in the hands of the right person it could be pretty interesting but it's gotta have a clear message in my opinion and i think there is fucking plenty of room for material jesus christ like knowing just the last couple of years there's plenty of room for material get jordan peele on this (laughs) get like john carpenter while he's still alive to like executive produce and get jordan peele to like write or direct or whatever this project it it would work speaking of and this is like a total fucking side tangent thing but that animated little teaser thing for Candyman that came out today is fucking amazing. I'm super pumped for that. I need need to watch that. Oh, it's really good. Anyway, 
let's get into the story. Yeah, we, we, we've talked to death this movie. and We're not saying anything new. <laughs> I already did my spiel. Like, just yeah. go watch it. It's less of a horror movie and more of a political satire movie, but the horror is very real. It's qualified. It's horror enough the real life shit's horrifying and it's from a horror director like it qualifies and i mean the first reveal is a little shocking yeah if you don't know anything about this if you don't know what you're expecting yeah so yeah we open with an unnamed drifter who you know again he is really only credited as nada but nobody really directly addresses him by name he arrives in los angeles so we see him kind of making his way through these desolate neighborhoods and shanty towns and just kind of run down areas on the borders of la and were these was uh carpenter using actual shots of like shanty towns because it felt very real i mean all this was real la the shantytown was put together. Well, I know there's shantytown, but like when he's walking through LA in this opening credits. Uh, all that's probably pretty real. I mean, yeah. I'm sure some of it might be staged, but one kind of interesting thing is they did hire a lot of actual homeless people in the area to be extras, and they were like paid and fed and everything else. Interesting. You know, so some of it might be staged, but probably not a whole lot of it. I mean, again, this was the 80s and economic inequality was definitely a thing at the time so it's not like there haven't ever been homeless people in the area certainly and it's not like big cities like that haven't ever had rough areas where businesses have collapsed and industries have collapsed and you just have these abandoned sections of town and you know what's the interesting aspect about this movie is that these are quote unquote in the rough parts of town but the only violence you ever see is perpetrated by who the police aliens and the police (laughs) yep and I think to me like watching it this time I, and I know we are immediately getting sidetracked but to me the alien stuff in this is all like fun and goofy and haha but the stuff that was the most disturbing to me this time because it's just so fucking fresh in our psyches is all the police stuff in this seeing militarized police in full riot gear beating the shit out of people who ostensibly aren't doing anything they haven't done anything we know really like why they're breaking everything up and we'll talk about it in a second but you know seeing them go in and just mercilessly beat innocent people and tear things apart and bulldoze stuff while people are still inside and set fire to things all that is very fresh in our psyches because guess what We've been fucking living that reality in the last month, 24-7 on the news. Yeah. And people in real life have been realizing that at protests, it's happening all around us right now. So that was definitely the, like, stuff in this movie that was the most fresh in my consciousness as I was watching it that bothered me. Yeah, the march in line and right gear and whoever is caught within the line was very similar looking to a lot of shit I've been seeing lately all over social media and and media um, in general. Something else that uh, I think one of our friends made a joke about this is that this movie is very much a now they do what they told you of the movie. Yeah. That lyric from Killing in the Name of by Rage Against the Machine but it's also very similar to uh, Subliminal by Suicidal Tendencies. The alien aspect of like Subliminal messages is more in that regard but Rage Against the Machine aspects of it are also (laughs) quite there. Um, So anyway 
anyway, yeah, as Nada kind of wanders through this desolate downtown L.A., he encounters a street preacher, played by Raymond St. Jocks, who was in Cotton Comes to Harlem, which is one of my favorite exploitation movies. He was also in stuff like The Final Comedown, The Baron. And yet, he did a lot of activism I read up to, specifically for getting African-American actors cast in not necessarily stereotypical roles. Yeah. Like, he even kind of criticized lack of minority actors in Star Wars, which he acknowledged he actually loved the Star Wars movies, and he had seen it like five times or something. He, he seemed to be a character actor in quite a lot of stuff from back from the 60s, but he uh, definitely also did a lot of activism as well. Yeah. But yeah, he is like your typical blind, has a crazy sign. He's, you know, running around screaming, they have come to recruit the rich and powerful, and they are trying to control humanity, etc. Right? But the police kind of run him off. This is outside the unemployment office. So Nada walks in, sees his giant long line at the unemployment office. Nada tells the unemployment woman that he was from Colorado and that his work dried up. So now he's here and course she's just kind of like yeah sorry bud we don't have anything for you and sends him on his way and between that and when keith david tells him later on about like same thing sort of happened his background in detroit yeah. it helps set up that all of america's really fucked if you're in a lower socioeconomic bracket basically yeah but as he's you know leaving he passes a job construction site and kind of talks his way onto the job even though it's a union job and while working he befriends a fellow construction worker named frank which again plays by Keith David. Keith David leads him that evening to this shanty town. And I like the way they do this because like Keith David's like, look, you can come here if you need a place to like eat and sleep. And he's like not responding. And then he just starts following him and Keith David's finally yeah. like, look, I don't like when people are following me. What the fuck is your problem, basically? Well, and then his reply was just, I don't listen to what anybody says until I know where they're going or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the dialogue is very sharp throughout this movie. Yeah. It's either tongue in cheek or sharp. Yeah. But we basically see, you know, there's a giant shantytown set up downtown, and there's essentially a group of people who are feeding everybody, and they are kind of operating out of this little church that's nearby. And once they get there, they meet the de facto leader of this group, Gilbert, who's kind of the main person trying to take care of everybody there. Gilbert is played by Peter Jason, who was also in Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, Escape from L.A., and Ghosts of Mars, but he was also in the Driver, 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, Karate Kid, Dreamscape, Hunt for Red October, Arachnophobia, Marked for Death, Congo, Mortal Kombat, Dante's Peak, Adaptation, Deadwood. God damn, he's in a lot of stuff. Yeah, Jurassic Park, or Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, rather. Here's our Batman the Animated Series character for this episode, which is a recurring bit. He played Mason in the episode It's Never Too Late, which is Batman basically trying to, like, change the ways of this old-timey gangster, essentially, and getting him to kind of reform. So, yeah. Anyway, kind of like you said, this movie does a good job of showing just how fucked everyone is. All races, all ages, all genders, etc. Like, this shantytown community is just everything. There's straight up people raising families in this community. There's like kids running around playing instead of with toys or playing with trash that they made into toys. Yeah. It's bad. While they're eating dinner, Frank tells Nada very explicitly, 
like about how his steel factory job in Detroit just kind of shriveled up and dried away, yet the upper management all made out like bandits with their bonuses and everything. They got a bailout. Yeah. The way he describes it is he says, the big cats who were like failing at the time really asked us to step up, so we did, but then when... Push came to shove. Yeah, yeah when push came to shove, they dropped us on our asses and, and only saved themselves and really only lined their own pockets. Basically yeah. kind of hinting that they got a government bailout. And not as attitude, again, is very much just follow the rules and hope for the best and everything will just be okay. Right? Yeah, that's that's where that, like, I believe in, in America line comes in. Yeah, it's very much just that I'm going to put on my blinders and do what they told me and hope for the best, dot, dot, dot. And, um, you know, maybe at one point in time, Frank was in that same mode, but now he's to the point where, like, he sees the other side of that. And so he's past that point of blind optimism, really. You know, he's he's still being compliant, but he's doing so out of necessity rather than blind idealism, essentially. Yeah, again, going back to the their two different ideas of compliance, like you had said. Um, one is blind compliance. The other yeah. is, oh, I know the truth, but I need to take care of my family kind of compliance. Yeah, that night... As Nada kind of walks by a group watching TV, a hacker takes over the broadcast. So, you know, they're watching, like, just really cheesy commercials and all of a sudden, like, static. And there's, like, a pirate, essentially, that comes on. And he's claiming that scientists have discovered signals that are enslaving the population and keeping them in a dreamlike state. And that the only way to stop it is to shut off the signal at its source. So, you know what these remind me of? Which, granted, he's not, like, dressed up in anything. It's a scientist guy. But it Remind but me it's of similar the, to Max Headroom. The Max Headroom signal hijacking yeah. that happened in 1987, a year before this movie came out. Yeah, and I'm sure that was probably an influence on this. But it, he was more of like a uh, a guy who would appear on Coast to Coast in this yeah. movie. <laughs> but yeah, the people that are kind of sitting around watching it all kind of complain about headaches as well. If you're all sitting around TV and you suddenly have headaches after a guy comes on and is like, there's a weird signal, you would maybe think, huh, there might be something to that. Anyway, there's kind of this one lead drifter that I'm going to mention here. He is played by George Buck Flower. George Flower. He was in tons of exploitation and porn back in the day. Wait, he was in, he's a porn actor? Or he was a porn actor? I don't think he was a porn actor. I okay. think he was in a lot of softcore porn stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. But he started working with Carpenter on The Fog, and he was also in fucking Duke Mitchell's Massacre Mafia style, which that's a whole weird tunnel to go down. He was in Back to the Future and The Night Stalker, Maniac Cop, Pumpkinhead, Spontaneous Combustion, Tammy and the T-Rex, Wishmaster. So he's definitely a dude who's been in like a lot of horror-specific stuff. And he is, this one particular homeless guy is very much the head buried in sand. Uh, this is all just a bunch of bullshit. I'm inconvenienced by this signal interrupting my TV yeah. kind of mindset. Like, he's very much back that on. mindset. Yeah. yeah, I am choosing to ignore what somebody is telling me because eh, I don't believe it. It's all bullshit and or like yeah, but it inconveniences my particular thing. So he's very much that kind of person. We will get back to him later, so yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah, I, I was kind of wondering like if we would come back to him when watching these scenes because they really kind of focus on him burying his head in the sand like you said. Yeah. So 
as this is happening, Nada sees in the distance the street preacher from earlier. And he's kind of at the edge of the shantytown, pantomiming the pirate broadcast, like word for word. And Gilbert, again, the leader of the shantytown, he rushes over and walks the preacher back across the street, just kind of like hustles him back across the street and into the church. Nada also notices that there is a police helicopter that's just kind of casually circling overhead, right? So he's he's seeing, and he's kind of thinking, like, what's going on? The next day, the pirate broadcast happens again, and Nada secretly follows Gilbert across to the church this time. He sees Gilbert, you know, suspiciously walking fast through the shantytown and across the street to the church. Which, uh, mind you, Gilbert never does a good job of hiding that he's being suspicious. <laughs> by Not the at way, all. like, no. anyone in this shantytown could just like watch him go down across the street just feet away from them and be like huh he's acting really weird about this doesn't even try and hide the fact that he's doing shady shit in this church yeah I also noticed to the church the sign out front said African Methodist Episcopal Church which that's three different things altogether. But anyway, yeah, Nato enters the church and he finds that there's just a stereo blasting choir music over a loudspeaker to make it seem like people are inside. Yeah, because he even stops Gilbert at one point and asks him like, hey, what's going on over there? And Gilbert just dismisses him saying like, oh, we're doing choir practice. Yeah, which again, he's immediately suspicious of. But once he gets over there, yeah, there is just a loudspeaker playing gospel music. But he finds this scientific equipment and these weird lenses and tons of cardboard boxes and even like a little hidden panel in the wall area with a bunch of more cardboard boxes in it. And on the wall is graffiti spray painted, they live, we sleep. So while he's back there, he hears Gilbert kind of arguing and talking back and forth with a small group which we see that the small group is Gilbert, the pirate hacker guy from the TV broadcast, and the preacher. And there's a few other people there too. But they're basically talking about how pirate broadcasts aren't really effective. They can't break through the signal. They have the Hoffman lenses, but they won't be enough without, you know, the strong people to help them, right? We're kind of getting all these cryptic clues about what these people are doing. If, if we could just find a signal of some kind. Like- yeah, not a trips over some bullshit shit and make some noise and the blind preacher finds him and oh yeah i know you're here okay cool and nada just kind of ditches out and escapes right and he even says something cryptic like you know you'll come back your eyes will open or something like that yeah later that night nada sees gilbert again and the others that were there earlier all leaving the church in a hurry people are blasting out in their cars their cars are like packed full of the cardboard boxes just people are fleeing that church like roaches right well and during all these scenes leading up to this at one point he even tries to approach frank about it and this is kind of where we get more of that don't get involved in that shit keep me out of it i have a family keep me out of it i don't want to know whatever you're involved in i don't want any of it just whatever mind your own business but yeah right after he sees all the people flee the church bang police show up in force and again these are like riot gear police showing up in a fucking bulldozer flares everywhere casting a really eerie like red light to the area and they're just plowing through this shanty town smashing buildings rolling over cars scattering people everywhere beating the fuck out of people and we we mentioned it earlier but this movie dropping in 1988 this scene looked just like shit we're seeing now on the news like yeah. I, I we can't stress enough how similar it is well i mean it just shows that what we are living through right now is not new it is systemic it is old it is stuff that has always been there you know this movie just 
shows, it has always been there. But anyway, yeah, as Nada flees the chaos, he runs down a back alley and sees the hacker guy and the preacher, like, getting the shit beat out of them by riot police. And he, you know, rounds the corner, finds another little survivor person, grabs them, brings them into this flop house, and they kind of hide away for the night. Piper said that this scene was actually kind of painful to shoot because it reminded him of similar events from when he was actually living on the streets for a time. Wow, really? This was shit that again, real life, this is not made up bullshit, you know, we're all living through it right now but he had kind of experienced some of that firsthand. Well, I mean, honestly like, out of all the, like, the sci-fi horror elements we're about to get into, to me that the most lasting image of this movie or lasting scene that's the most horrific is when he gets on that alley and there are a bunch of riot police that have cornered the blind priest and the like scientist guy who had been on the broadcast and like you said basically probably beat them to death. Yeah, because we don't see him the rest of the movie. There's that small part where like Nada has that pause of almost I need to intervene but he realizes that if he does, but he doesn't, he's yeah. going to get killed too because there's literally like 30 cops there doing it. And so instead he does the only thing he can do. He saves the one guy who hasn't been no- noticed also which is like not necessarily like a kid kid but like a teenager or young adult yeah. who's kind of frightened and saves yeah. him instead. He does what he can in that moment and chooses to kind of just keep going. So the following day, Nada goes back to the church and finds that it's empty. The graffiti's been painted over, but that hidden panel that he accidentally found the day before still has a few cardboard boxes in it. So he grabs one. Well, and immediately, like, cops are kind of surveilling the area as well still because, like, there's a squad car that goes by and he, like, ducks yeah, out of the view. And- there's still a helicopter kind of circling around, but he takes the one cardboard box and kind of rushes off into a back alley and he opens the box up to see what it is probably expecting to see like weapons or drugs or leaflets or something right but it's just a bunch of cheap fucking sunglasses yeah they look cheap on purpose too (laughs) yeah it's just you know five dollar sunglasses well weird detail that i read was apparently they were a bunch of sunglasses left over from big trouble in little china that makes sense they just kind of bought boxes (laughs) of cheap shitty sunglasses for that movie just had a bunch left over but anyway yeah disappointed he like stashes the box in a nearby garbage can and it's just kind of like eh, fuck it like i'll just take a pair with me he just doesn't think anything of it so as nada wanders the streets he discovers that all of a sudden as soon as he puts the sunglasses on the world is black and white like literally black and white and that there are subliminal messages on all the billboards all the signs all the advertisements everything these are some of the most iconic shots of the of this movie totally all you got to do is like Google image search they live and you're going to see the black and white world when you have the sunglasses on and what sign like what the signs are saying. Yeah. And all the messages are things like obey, do not question authority, marry and reproduce, consume, conform, buy, no thought, reward indifference, honor apathy, watch TV, right? It's just like that fucking everywhere. Every sign, every billboard, every magazine, everything. I love love how also to each sign kind of corresponds to the thing it is in when you don't have yeah. the sunglasses on so like that you know marry reproduce sign is actually a sign for like dating singles in the area or something like that well it was a coca-cola sign but it had like a woman in a bikini bikini that's what it was yeah it was something yeah. sexual and then the actual subliminal is marry reproduce and then like my favorite one was when he sees someone hand money over when he has the glasses on the money are just yeah. slips of paper that say this is your god yeah <laughs> like, 
it's very like it's on the nose it's very literal but it's also very effective but it's just done so well yeah but yeah he's looking through all these magazines at a newsstand and then he kind of notices a businessman standing next to him that walked up he's like seeing him through the sunglasses and this guy is a fucking alien blue and like purple with big bug eyes and like well we don't see that necessarily until the end it's also black and white until the end yeah but imagine like if you just ripped the skin off a person and gave them metallic googly eyes that's kind of what these aliens all look like if you've never seen any imagery whatsoever from this movie even the poster like it's a little shocking like when you first see it because like carpenter does this in such a way because a lesser movie you would have had like a drop in the sound soundtrack it would have been <laughs> yeah. a, this big giant reveal no it's there's no music. matter yeah. of the fact there's no fucking music it's as if you're walking down the street in downtown los angeles and you go up to a newsstand and there are just people around doing their day-to-day thing and then you put on these sunglasses the sound is exactly the same it's just you know cars going by people talking chatter yeah but you're seeing aliens and like all the drones in the sky randomly that are, were visible and all these signs saying things they're not supposed to be saying and the, the things they're saying are extremely menacing yeah and something else that you would notice i mean it's not a such a small detail where you can easily overlook it but it is a nice detail that they never outright say they just show anytime you see an alien it's in somebody who looks like they are kind of of the upper class or upper middle class they always yeah. look like people who are at least from it's a, always business people it's always rich people yeah it's like, always yuppies yeah totally and like they usually have a shitty attitude too They're, yeah it's like you said rich yuppies well the scene of him kind of wandering around i mean now that he's like seeing everything you see like a rich woman holding her dog who's actually an alien and she's going on and on and just yapping at her help essentially like who's putting everything in her cars and loading up all of her luggage and everything and they're regular humans you know, like it's a lot of that again the businessman next to him is very much just like what are you looking at fuck off buddy you know seeing like who this person really is right and Carpenter refers to them not as aliens but as ghouls so that's how we're gonna kind of refer to them the, the ghouls rest of the episode they yeah, are the ghouls. they are pretty ghoulish yeah which he wanted them not to necessarily look like high-tech aliens that you know you kind of are used to seeing across all kinds of media but he wanted them to look like human corpses a little bit because they are essentially corrupting humanity so he wanted them to look slightly human but off in a way (laughs) they're pretty off looking yeah the ghouls were pretty much all played by the stunt coordinator jeff imada and michelle costello like they were kind of the two that are always playing the ghouls in the scenes and there's just little bits like you know again i love seeing the certain rich people like whining about like their mundane bullshit the ghoul movie critic is also pretty good just oh yeah there's too much sex and violence in media with directors like romero and carpenter right bullshit like that i love we'll return to that because like there's something very specific because this movie like does turn into like one giant middle finger to a lot of the uh, of establishment but there's one that one scene is also kind of tied to like that's not only just a a middle finger to necessarily the government that we have in place but maybe to hollywood in some ways like more conservative hollywood a little bit of everything but i'll I'll bring that back up at the end when we get to it yep but nada eventually goes into a grocery store 
you know, he's kind of wandering around and looking at the products, and we see some more ghouls interacting. Like, you definitely see one guy who's like, yeah, Jeff, don't worry about it, bud. You're going to get that promotion someday. And he's like, this is a ghoul speaking to a regular person. The regular person's like, yeah, but, like, I've worked there longer than you have, and you got it. And he's just like, oh, I don't know what to tell you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> It's just so much of, like, that kind of stuff that he's seeing, and he's walking to the front, and this ghoul woman, like, bumps into him, and she's just like, oh, excuse me, right? And, of course, he's just like, fuck you, lady, you formaldehyde-faced monster. And he's just like, what the fuck is, is, am I going crazy? Is everybody seeing this? Like, what the fuck is wrong with these people, right? Like, this is where he kind of does start to crack a little bit. And this is where, like, he lashes out. Yeah, he's, like, knocking shit over and falling uh, over and really screaming and causing a scene. He has this new information and he wants to like fix it or change it but he doesn't know how to and it's still shocking yeah. to him. This lady is being an asshole to him so he's just like fuck it. Fuck you lady. <laughs> yeah and once it's clear that he knows who she is he looks back and he sees her talking on her wristwatch like a radio notifying other nearby ghouls that Nada can actually see her and of course like you said he, he looks across and sees all these other ghouls like also like listening to the wristwatches and getting the signal. Yeah, and they all just dead staring him now. It's almost like a, he's being like a gang stalked at this point, which is kind of yeah. creepy. But yeah, he rushes out. He's immediately cornered by two cops in an alleyway, which wearing the sunglasses, he sees both of these cops are ghouls. And he ends up fighting and killing both of them and stealing their which weapons. I did laugh at this point, but he knocks them both down on the ground, disarms one of them with the gun, winds up shooting them and he even makes a comment of like oh so you can be killed in the same way we can and it's just funny to me that like here's this guy in broad daylight and like busy Los Angeles street yeah nobody notices disarms these two cops and then shoots them like with a fucking revolver that's I gotta imagine pretty damn loud and yeah, yeah nobody about, notices yeah, it goes about their day but yeah then at this point he enters a bank and he sees that several of the employees and the customers are all ghouls and this is of course when you have the line i have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and i'm all out of bubblegum before that he went into the cop car and got like their shotgun so he's armed yeah. with like a shotgun so what do you know like what the background of this specific line was was this just carpenter having some fun basically no no, no. apparently this was kind of an ad lib really apparently Piper had a notebook that he like literally just wrote down all of his ideas for one-liners and insults and shit. Oh, that I can imagine that because he's regarded as one of the best promos in wrestling. So yeah, one of my favorite wrestling quotes is from him in one of his promos. He says, "Just when you think you have the answers, I change the questions," and that's very much of like <laughs> on, of the similar vein as this line. Where you come from? I'm from Columbus, Ohio. From Columbus, Ohio. I've wrestled in Columbus, Ohio. I've never lost a match in Columbus, Ohio. Have you ever lost a match? Yeah. You have. See, it's, it seems odd to me when you're talking about fighting careers and a career like my, myself, uh, I, I went on the premise of never having to lose a match. I've never lost a match in my whole career. I've had different things happen to me, but I have never actually lost a match because I figured once you were defeated one time that it would take that oomph away from you that you needed. Yourself, you're just the opposite. I have never seen you win a match in my whole career of watching you, and I've seen you've been around. You've fought some tremendous fighters. I've seen what you've done, but you, you lack the guts. You lack the authority to go in there. You lack the guts, and when you're against the ropes, what you do is instead of going after 
after a man, you just back off from him. Maybe a little cowardism. Maybe what you do, maybe you should be making pizzas. I'm not a coward of nobody. I'm not afraid of nobody. Otherwise, I won't wait be Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Just relax, relax. This is, this is verbal. This is not physical. Pizzas or something like that. Maybe. I said, I'm not afraid of nobody. I'm always inside ring, no matter what. And I don't run for nobody. You got no room for nobody. That's a wonderful thing. You got no room for nobody, but you're a lousy wrestler. It's as simple as that. I might be a lousy wrestler, but I'm still in there. I'm not afraid of nobody. Piper hammering away. Oh, no. Piper all over Frank Williams. Puck. Unbelievable. It's simple as this. Just when they think they got the answers, I change the questions. Uh, yeah, the shit that I've heard from him and Macho Man is, like, still, like, both of them are, like, my all-time favorites. And I'm not, like, a huge wrestling fan, but both of those dudes I fucking appreciate the shit out of just for, like, their showmanship. Yeah, quick aside, I know I've recommended this actually on our show as, like, actually a horror recommendation. Go back and, um, watch some, uh, Jake the Snake Roberts old promos. <laughs> that shit was hilarious. He was menacing as fuck. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, apparently he had this notebook filled with one-liner ideas and he like shared that with Carpenter while they were making the movie. That makes me so happy that like this might have been a promo that he didn't use in wrestling and instead he decided to use here. Yeah. And at this point he murders several of the ghouls and notices one like calling in his description with the wristwatch but right as he like goes to shoot him this alien teleports away like just literally like poof bright light blip blop is gone. Something to be noted here. A couple things I actually wanted to touch on. Throughout this movie, whenever he has his sunglasses on, anytime he sees someone who isn't an alien, he like completely ignores them. He's very just much like either get out of the way or like, you know, oh, I'm sorry, miss. But to the aliens, he is fucking a merciless killer. And I gotta imagine there's some active shooter vibes going on in this scene when he just starts opening fire on the aliens in this bank. That is one thing that is kind of disturbing about this movie. Like, now because we've had so many fucking mass shooter situations at this point it is a little disturbing to see a guy who is like very convinced in his beliefs busting into a very public place like a bank that's loaded with people and then just unloading that's definitely a little bit disturbing and obviously like we are on his side in this movie well in the movie makes it a point you see it from his perspective the whole time so you see that he is only shooting at aliens and granted the gun physics in this movie are sure bananas so he is only he has perfect aim and he's only hitting them but i think why this scene is still really effective too is because up to this point you're not sure what you're really seeing you're not sure if you're really seeing the truth or if you're seeing his delusions all of a sudden and there is uncertainty to that for a good bit of this movie until like there is confirmation from other characters that yes this is all what's going on for real and so there is a little bit of that uncertainty like going into this movie not knowing anything about it that is certainly a factor that might catch you off guard and I can see that being a questionable factor for a lot of people because again like until there is confirmation you're not sure if he's just fucking crazy or not so it's it's definitely a like very very intense couple of minutes of this movie that 
could be kind of triggering to those kinds of anxieties, especially like mass shooter stuff. Anyway, not escapes. And kind of like you said, he, he does run into another police officer outside who ends up being human. He just kind of like says, fucking run. And the guy just takes off, you know? Well, and outside he notices for the first time, really, that there's a floating drone camera uh, yeah. that you normally wouldn't see unless you had these glasses on that is floating and starts taking his video, basically. And yeah. he shoots it down. But he ends up kidnapping a woman named Holly Thompson. He like takes her hostage in a parking garage and basically just says like, fuck it, get in your car, drive, drive, drive. We got to get out of here. And he convinces her to take him to her house because he asks her like, you know, are you married? Do you live with anybody? Whatever. Let's go there. That's going to be the safest place. I got to get away from everything. Trust me. And Holly is played by Meg Foster, Uh, which Meg Foster, she was in a lot of TV stuff, but she was in the Osterman Weekend. She is in Masters of the Universe, Leviathan, Stepfather 2. She's in Lords of Salem. She was in an episode of Twin Peaks The Return. Playing a cashier, that was one of those like, wait, what? Meg Foster's in this fucking show? But I guess like, <laughs> that show is nonstop people on people, right? She was also in lots of CW shows in the recent past as well. No matter how she has aged, the one thing that even to this day is interesting about Meg Foster is her eyes. She has like that most... Oh, totally. piercing eyes I've ever seen. She's very striking, but her eyes are just so ethereal. Like, it's really weird. Yeah, and like, especially nowadays, like, as she's an older age, and obviously she's aged, but her eyes still remain really ethereal looking. Yeah. It's kind of haunting. I don't know if I like her in this movie, if I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, I don't know how much of the way she portrays this character is on purpose. This was like the one character I I didn't really care for. I think her performance still works. And I guess like we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I think her performance still works because you're never sure what angle she's playing. That is where it wor- does work. I do agree with you. Because she, she almost is playing almost like a noir film femme fatale. A little bit, but she's only in three scenes of this movie. Well, yeah, that's why Like, I'm not really quite sure what she's trying to play here. Yeah. She's almost talking like she's in a different genre of movie. That's why. And it feels like a noir film whenever she's speaking and she's on the screen. That's why I said it. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, that is the part that does work I will agree with you is like she does a good job of you just don't know what to trust with her. There's ambiguity to her character and I think that makes the performance work. I'll kind of agree with you like I don't think it's the best performance in the world necessarily but I think it services the story. Yeah. She's a great actress don't get me wrong like I've seen her do well in other projects I just wasn't too hot on this performance. Nada basically gives her the whole rundown of the glasses and the hidden messages and everything and she doesn't believe any of his craziness right she just kind of calls bullshit on all of it and the glasses have kind of made him hung over at this point kind of like how people were getting headaches from the tv signal earlier wearing the glasses for a sustained amount of time is kind of making him feel like woozy and lightheaded and everything and he starts talking about you know all this crazy bullshit and she reveals that she's actually a 
programming executive for Cable 54. And immediately then Nada's trying to tell her all about the hidden signal and blah, blah, blah. And she fucking knocks his ass out with a wine bottle that she got earlier when she was like, yeah, I'm going to pour myself a drink. She smashes that fucking wine bottle over his head. It's a pretty good, uh, it's like, a good move, self-defense yeah. move because she spin smashes it. Like she yeah. back smashes him with it in like a spin And knocks move. him out a window, <laughs> which her house is one of those California houses built on a hill. So, of course, he gets fucking knocked out of this window window and rolls down the hill like 90 feet and immediately she calls the police you know and not a man just to avoid the police he like sees him driving up the street up the hill and he avoids them but um little by little he makes his way back to the construction site where he was working and finds frank again and frank basically tells him fuck off dude you're wanted after the bank shootout yeah. like fuck off i don't want to have anything to do with you get the fuck away from here and and something else that should be known is that while he uh was at holly's like he was trying to get her to put on the sunglasses and that's kind of how she baited him in to like hit him over the head with the wine yeah. glass i'll do what you want i'll put them on if that'll calm you down and like kind of draws him in that way and he left the sunglasses on her floor when he got smashed out the window yeah. and something else that's interesting is as he's walking kind of like stumbling through the streets like you see on the tv his face so they know who his identity but like it's an old picture of him where he doesn't look as scraggly i guess yeah frank is like you know how many fucking people did you kill which it was crazy to me that frank was even this calm with him because yeah. frank has no idea <laughs> like what any of this alien shit all he knows is that nada fucking murdered 12 people in a bank and killed two cops and ran <laughs> yeah Anyway, yeah, Nada returns to the alleyway where he stashed the box of sunglasses. And he notices they're gone, but then he sees a garbage truck right there. And he opens the hatch and digs the box of sunglasses back out. And right at that moment, Frank shows up and is like, look, here's your fucking paycheck. Just go. Get out of here. Get away from all of us. You're just causing trouble. Stay away. And this is where Nada's like, no, bro, you need to put on these fucking glasses. Yeah, I gotta show you. You won't believe me if I just tell you, put on these fucking glasses. And Frank's just like, bro, you're a fucking murderer. I want to have nothing to do with you. I have Fuck a family. Off, yeah. Fuck off. And the greatest fist fight of all time ensues. To say it's a fist fight is underselling it. Honestly, this is a fucking brawl. This is a backstage brawl from a WWE <laughs> event. Like this, this really does feel like John Carpenter like talked to Roddy Piper and was just like, "Look, I want this to be like a backstage brawl at a wrestling oh, yeah. event because you know it has like three or four different periods of them taking turns taking hits and selling. And for those of you who don't know wrestling terms, selling is when someone is hit by a move and they are acting like they are more injured than they actually are yeah so like they get hit in the face so they even though the other wrestler didn't technically hit them in the face like punch them full on they acted like they just got punched in the face and they're showing pain that's what selling is and like as a wrestling fan myself this very much felt like Roddy Piper kind of helped choreograph the scene to me because it felt very much like the recent WWE taped special matches that they've been doing that almost have like a movie feel to them and when you think this scene is gonna end it doesn't it keeps going (laughs) There's fucking suplexes. There's tackles to the cement. There's punches and kicks. There's nut shots. This scene has even been spoofed and parodied in like South Park, I think, among other things. But I I remember Jimmy and Timmy having an episode where they spoofed 
sequenced this entire fight scene and did it like almost frame by frame, frame by frame, like shot by shot, yeah, it everything. Great. It was the same amount of time. It's great. What was the purpose of having this in a movie? I'm glad it isn't here, but again, yeah, what was for the fuck's sake, that's why. Yeah, this fight was planned to be long. Apparently, there were several pages in the script that just said the fight continues. <laughs> that's fucking it. <laughs> and no one really wins. I mean, honestly, Keith David kind of wins a fight. It's just that he gets blindsided at the end and then the Anata is able to like slip the glasses on him. Yeah. But like no one's really a winner in this fight. They both beat the living shit out of each other. Yeah. This movie is known for two things. It's known for the iconography and it's known for this fucking fight scene. Jeff Amata, the stunt coordinator that we talked about earlier who like plays all the ghouls. He rehearsed this fight with Piper and David for like a fucking month. They took a long time rehearsing this whole thing. This is kind of a sidetrack but there's a fucking DVD from like the golden age of DVDs as a format that my brothers and I rented probably a dozen fucking times. Take us back to 2002 summer. It was like best fight scenes and it was literally just a DVD full of all of these really solid fucking fight scenes from all kinds of movies. I want this DVD now. What? (laughs) Okay, it was called Ultimate Fights. It was scenes from Blade Snatch, Scarface, The Killer, First Blood, Rumble in the Bronx, Gladiator. Yeah, there was like all kinds of shit, but there was definitely like this fight scene. That's like the main thing I remember was like watching this fight scene so many times. I'd be like, fuck, this goes on for so long. These two guys beating ass in this <laughs> fucking alleyway. Anyway, like you said, Nada eventually like catches Frank off guard and manages to slip the sunglasses on. And, you know, immediately all of a sudden it's just like, oh, wait, oh shit. I like see everything. I see the ghouls. I see like a flying saucer in the fucking sky i see all the weird advertisements so immediately frank is convinced yeah again i feel like it was one of those things where like on a deeper level or deep down his heart he kind of knew something was up but yeah now that he actually sees it he's just like i can't hide from this anymore confirmation yeah but they go and hide out at a flop hotel downtown and there's kind of a fun heart-to-heart kind of moment where they're both just sharing their common pains and we learn a little bit more about nada's backstory and how his dad abused him and just how he wasn't going to take shit from anybody ever again and blah blah blah. But they basically both conclude that they've got to track down the makers of the sunglasses. Like they have to figure out like what are the next steps? Now that we know the truth, like what do we do next? Luckily the next day Gilbert tracks them down to the hotel himself. So talk about like a lucky shot there. Yeah, I think just for the sake of moving the plot they just they did totally, it that yeah. way cuz I mean you would think if Gilbert can track them, you know, this police surveillance alien thing would be able to track There's them, but no yeah, need like, to complicate it though yeah no need to complicate it because this movie is already bananas yeah and again this is carpenter working at a very practical level like there's no need to complicate it further but yeah gilbert gives them the address of where an underground resistance meeting is happening that night so at the meeting frank and nada are both given contact lenses to replace the sunglasses they like took the same technology and basically put it into like a permanent contact lens that they don't have to wear the sunglasses and it causes less interference and therefore less headaches they also kind of get a rundown on like here's the alien wristwatch and it's some kind of communicator that we can listen in on and it also teleports but we don't know how that works yet then here's all these weapons just go ahead and grab whatever the fuck you need this is Chekhov's alien me 
meeting. Yeah. <laughs> you see the the hacker guy on a TV, the like broadcast message again, and he's talking about how like yeah they're using global warming to make the Earth more like their own planet. They're you know warming the atmosphere and they're putting toxins into the air to make it more like their place, and they're gonna deplete all of Earth's resources. They're basically just coming here, assimilating Earth to their own environment, and then using all of our resources, and then they're just going to move on to the next planet. A movie that openly is acknowledging global warming in the 80s, and it's a fucking horror movie. Again, shit ain't new, just people keep ignoring it. But again, another instance why this movie is firmly not a conservatively leaning fucking movie at all. This would not be a factor if this movie was all about conservative ideals, let's be real. Even the subliminal messaging, 75% of it is making fun of consumerism, which is deeply tied into capitalism. (laughs) Yeah. So, anyway, you know, they also learn that the ghouls have been bright humans to become collaborators essentially like promoting them into positions of power we learn that police are also being told that this resistance group is actually a bunch of anti-government communists and everything else so you know there is a subversion of the truth going on with law enforcement and hey you want another instance of making this timeless just replace communists with terrorists now yeah and it would work well I mean they call them terrorists specifically but yeah if we're talking about I idealism yeah just replace them with like oh yeah they're a bunch of jihadists same idea but kind of like we're seeing now just the whole idea of peaceful protesters being labeled as terrorists it's the same fucking thing Gilbert tells the group that the only way to stop the ghouls is to stop their subliminal signal, and that's keeping humans asleep. He thinks that the source is at a local TV station. They have, like, an insider guy who thinks that's where it is. Then we see Holly show up, and she kind of pipes up and says, No, y'all are wrong. The source is actually at Cable 54, where I work. Convenient truth. Yes. Holly goes up to Nada to apologize and kind of say she was sorry from earlier. Like, yeah, I know the truth now. Sorry that we're on the wrong side, but like, blah, blah, blah. And then, boom, the meeting is raided by the police. Kick down all the doors, flares everywhere. They start shooting everybody. This aspect would immediately make me just like, I don't trust you, Holly, anymore. Yeah. That's where I was in this movie. As soon as that happened, I was like, I mean, I didn't trust Holly when they first met them, but this confirmed it. But... Did you feel like there was a little bit of uh, Nada wanting her to be legit because he was kind of attracted to her? Was there any kind of subtext there that you took? Maybe a little bit, but there is definitely not a romantic relationship no, that's ever, like, really not developed at all. between them. But I think he's kind of blinded by, like, a pretty face and not sure. yeah. willing to, like, kind of see what's right in front of him. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that for sure. But anyway, yeah, the vast majority of the Resistance group is killed including Gilbert Holly manages to escape Frank and Nada end up in an alleyway where they're cornered by the cops and they can't get out and while Frank is kind of fucking around with the wristwatch communicator thing he's trying to like activate it so he can hear what's going on but he accidentally like activates the teleportation feature he like throws the watch on the ground and the watch starts flicking light 
and eventually it like boom opens a portal in the fucking ground and you just hear a voice saying your communicator is damaged here is a one-time portal so you can go ahead and escape so portal's gonna close in 10 seconds they're both screaming and arguing with each other like get in the portal no where the fuck does it go i don't know ah they're just kind of stuck right it's kind of funny because it it sounds very um bureaucratic you know very much a automated like do this thing yeah but it literally is just like a giant imagine like a looney tunes black hole that just (laughs) peeled up and like flicked onto the ground like that's kind of what it is it's just this glowing blue hole in the ground but they both jump down as the police are kind of closing in on them in this alleyway and they're in like a long concrete tunnel it's like a long access tunnel like you would find underneath a stadium or something like that. Yeah, and they they say it, it may be they, under the whole city. He thinks it's like city. underground, yeah. Yeah, like under the whole city. And there's numerous entrances that are all kind of marked with alien script. And you hear like a voice over the PA system even say, there are lots of convenient locations that you can, you know, debark at and they're all like bilingual, whatever, right? They're sneaking around and they sneak past these two security guards who are wearing in camo and they're armed they're both ghouls but you know obviously they're still disguised as humans they're both listening in on the radio and high-fiving because the radio said like yeah the resistance has been eliminated weirdly enough the fucking radio thing that they're using is like a pke meter from ghostbusters yeah so something that worst idea of all time that podcast does since they're watching like yeah. the same terrible movie you know over 50 times they do these segments where they focus on side characters or background characters that are insanely interesting and you want to know more about their backstory and they kind of make up headcanon for them if we were watching they live like 52 times these would be the two that i would make a segment about yeah. of like <laughs> what's their what story are these two alien guards hanging out it's yeah. not just oh yeah we got them it's yippee bro we did it high five like they are way too enthusiastic yeah. about this as they're walking through the tunnel, Frank and Nada hear a lot of people talking, and they discover this lavish ballroom where there's a few hundred wealthy tuxedoed humans that are all dining and drinking and listening to a speech congratulating them on becoming collaborators, and the ghoul speaker announces that the West Coast terrorists have been eliminated, blah blah blah. So this is definitely just like a giant welcoming committee for all the people who were turncoats, right? What did they call these humans? too they called him like you are the human elite alliance or something like that yeah basically but yeah it's just all the people who turned coat and are getting social promotions essentially which on that note they are now approached by the old drifter guy from the shantytown but now that he's a collaborator he's all cleaned up he's wearing a tuxedo he's sipping champagne he's shaved right like he's still like the grumpy old southern like a good old boy like whatever but now he's you know the wealthy elite he's one of the club this guy is like the biggest piece of shit in this movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah um, which this whole, you know, I just knew I liked you. You're one of us kind of attitude, right? That the drifter has that shit is fucking infuriating to me personally, because it's the kind of shit that, you know, if you're listening to this show and you are not from the South and, you know, especially if you are not a white male listener, this is the kind of shit that is the nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of attitude that you catch from people. And it's kind of fucking aggravating. And it's definitely something that I find insult in. I am bald with a beard, heavyset white guy. With an accent. (laughs) With, With a Southern 
southern accent. Yeah, I also happen to live in the South, right? Yeah. And I, in my professional career, have often gotten this wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of bullshit. And it's always one of those things where I'm like, no, no, I don't agree with you at all. I don't condone what you just said. I don't agree with it. That's some bullshit. Like, no, I'm not part of that. Yeah, I've. this has been a very common thing throughout my life, too. Yeah. And it's something that you have to fucking learn to, like, speak up against. I deal with people from time to time professionally who would make comments or who would try to include you in certain things and make jokes and kind of in that nudge, nudge, wink, wink, get you to play along kind of way. And it's always like, no, fuck off with that. Not part of that. Go fucking die. Right. Like, I just I'm I'm not going to play that game. That attitude, though, is exactly what this fucking guy is doing, which is just, oh, I see you've come around. Y'all are some of the good ones now. You're here to join the cause and do the right thing, right? Like, that whole fucking attitude. To Frank and Nada's credit, instead of just decking him right then and there, like, they very well should have or, or could have done, and it would have been just as believable, they play around along with them. They're like, yeah, why don't you give us the grand tour? Why don't you show us the broadcast room? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a lot less patience than I have, I'll say that yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah, the drifter thinks that they've also, like, joined the ghouls, right? And so he gives them a tour of the, like, facility that they're in, and reveals that it's essentially a fucking spaceport and he like walks them around the corner and they see this giant teleportation platform with an antenna and a giant huge open window in space and it's revealed that oh shit we are in fucking space right now on a space station earth is like way off in the distance and we see ghouls like stepping onto this platform and getting zapped to different corners of space yeah it's like what other planets that they've done the same thing to and their yeah. home planet you know and he, it's just kind of in like a hand wave you're like oh yeah it's some kind of like gravitational lenses or whatever ah don't worry about it that's that's boring come over here let me show you something else cool so he leads them to another area of the facility which is the fucking basement of the cable 44 building and or the cable 54 building rather which is the source of the signal and they're kind of in a booth the soundproof glass and everything and we see like a news broadcast happening where both of the news anchors are ghouls of course and you know yeah. this is like their subliminal message and shit and Frank and Nada finally reveal themselves they shoot the guards and the drifter guy is just kind of like okay bye you know see you later bros and he like teleports away I was a little frustrated that he got away yeah you kind of want him to like eat shit yeah <laughs> but yeah Frank and Nada fight their way through this building they're trying to get to the transmitter that's on the roof so they can shut down the signal while they're making their way through this office building you know upstairs through different floors being chased by security guards the entire time they end up finding holly and they kind of drag her along for a little bit and right as they get to the roof not a like runs through runs up to the roof and goes to the hatch and we see holly like spin around with a gun and she shoots frank in the head this all happens very quickly it's a quick, like the last yeah. two minutes or so of the movie but she shoots frank dumb basically revealing that you know she's a collaborator which we kind of expected from the beginning right and on the roof not as surrounded by helicopters snipers and everything else and there's kind of this standoff moment where Polly comes out of the roof and is trying to negotiate with him and say like look you could be rich you could be powerful like we could give you everything don't do this you know it's for your best interest just come with us everything will be okay yeah they control everything there's nothing you can change blah 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 yeah. you know that whole 
Trumpy speech. Yeah. And Nada fucking puts around in her. She goes down. And then he turns around and shoots the transmitter and blows it up. And the cops open fire from the uh, helicopter. Yeah. At this point, the helicopter snipers, like, all light him up. And as he is, like on the ground bleeding out dying he fucking flips him off right as he's dying big middle finger is just like fuck you as the transmitter's exploding yeah a literal middle finger to the system man and then we have like a montage of you know all these humans all over the world discovering the ghouls that have been amongst them this whole time like all of a sudden you know they're seeing on TV the ghouls and seeing the advertisements and seeing the like ghouls sitting amongst them and there's a couple scenes of like you know there's a guy in a bar that everybody suddenly is like, oh, what the shit? What is this guy? My favorite is it, it's the ending. It's the woman having sex. And all of a sudden she looks down and it's a fucking alien. And the best last line ever is just that fucking ghoul going, hey, what's wrong, baby? And then the cut act- the black. Cut, cut the, the black. Cut the credits. <laughs> that shit's so good. This is something that I think he did on purpose. Oh, And totally, I want to get your, totally. your take on this because the scene right before that is that scene of some shithead movie critic being like, people like Carpenter and Romero really need to tone it down with the gratuitous- All the sex and the violence. All the sex yeah. and the violence. <laughs> and then the next shot is immediately a topless girl having sex- With an alien, yeah. He's an alien. That is such a, in my opinion, such a fuck you to like movie critics that are that way or conservative Hollywood. Totally, yeah. That was the point I wanted to make at the very end, is that that just feels like a very much like a literal fuck you to them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's wrong, baby? (laughs) So, yeah, that's They Live. (laughs) What an incredible movie. Rest in peace, Roddy Piper. Keith David's amazing. John Carpenter is amazing. Meg Foster's eyes are ethereal. (laughs) I don't don't know what else (laughs) to say. It's a very, very uh, poignant and relevant movie right now. I would say even almost a must watch for really relevant satire. I mean, there's nothing else I can say. If you right now in this moment, shit, in this moment, in this last fucking four years if if you are mad about what's happening if you are disgusted by everything that you see going on around you right now if you are living in a state of fear and anxiety like this is a movie that is worth checking out right now absolutely because it will kind of at least give you a little bit of levity and light a little bit of a fire under you all said and done like it's definitely inspiring from that standpoint knowing that we can do this we can get past all this bullshit that we're dealing with right now we can make change it is possible to do so we just have to like stick with it so if you need a little bit of a pick me up right now you could certainly do worse as far as horror stuff goes it's tough watching horror and being a horror fan when there's just so much bad shit happening right now in our everyday lives that you want to get away from and you don't want to just see that shit on screen constantly this is kind of definitely a good movie that, again, will light a little bit of a fire under you and maybe get you a little motivated all said and done. So I would definitely recommend this movie, especially now. But this is an all-timer for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, there's really nothing else I can add to that. I, I am in agreement. Yep, yep. So that is going to be it for this week. We are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. 
We are found on social media at Watch If You Dare, Twitter, Facebook. Um, you can catch our episodes on pretty much every podcatcher at this point. And once again, if the podcast community wasn't so helpful, uh, I would not want to be on there right now. <laughs> Twitter is <laughs> yeah. is very much a tool of the aliens from They Live. Yeah, social media sucks. But it's an essential thing, unfortunately, for what we do. But yeah, you can find us there. Um, you can find us at basically every podcatcher that you want. We're on pretty much all of them at this point. But be sure to rate, review, subscribe, blah, blah, blah on Apple Podcasts specifically, because that's kind of the main one as far as exposure goes, which we totally appreciate everything that everybody's done so far. Really, really humbled by a lot of the people that we've talked to recently and just a lot of the support from the general community. So big thanks. I am kind of sad to say personally, you know, with everything going on that Mississippi Comic-Con has been canceled. Um, I was kind of hoping that we could maybe bag some interviews for the show. Maybe some of that will still happen. We'll find out. But, you know, life is what it is right now. Otherwise, please give my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, some support over at Bandcamp. Um, You can find him at Party Gator and all of his other associated acts are linked off from there. But as always, he does our bumps, the beginning and the ends of every episode. So definitely try to give him some support if you can get some good music. That's about it. Derek, you got any last words? Sally, either you're going to put on these sunglasses or you're going to start eating trash can. (laughs) Yeah, punch punch. (laughs) Nutshot suplex at one point, I think. (laughs) 